Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Professor Sahail Inatula. Professor Inatula is the first UNESCO Chair in Future Studies held at USIM in Malaysia. For 19 years, he has been a professor at Tamkang University, Taiwan. He is also an associate at Melbourne Business School, which is attached to Melbourne University, and an adjunct professor at the University of the Sunshine Coast. He is the director of metafuture.org, an international think tank focused on creating alternative and preferred futures. Professor Inatula has authored and edited 30 books, journals, special issues and CD-ROMs and over 350 journal articles and book chapters. As well, he has contributed to the Oxford Encyclopedia of Peace, the Routledge Encyclopedia of Philosophy, the Macmillan Encyclopedia of the Future and the UNESCO Encyclopedia of Life Support Systems. His recent book include Asia 2038, 10 Disruptions That Change Everything, and Transformation 2050, The Alternative Futures of Malaysian Universities. Welcome to FuturePod, Sahail. Thanks, Peter. Great to be here. Great to see you again. Good. Now, Sahail, we've got a set of questions, and I think you know them pretty well, because I, I just remembered about 20 years ago, you you surveyed 100 or so futurists for the last uh, Knowledge Base of Future Studies, didn't you? What futurists think. What futurists think. And we modelled our questions pretty much on yours, so... I think you'll be comfortable with them. Thank so you. first question, Sahail, we, we ask all our guests is what is what is your story of how you found found your way into the futures and foresight community? We grew up moving everywhere. So from Peshawar to Indiana to New York to Geneva to Kale and then went eventually to Hawaii and then to the Sunshine Coast in Australia. So the movement less than one was everything changes. Lesson two was everyone has another. So in every country there was someone that was evil. <laughs> and so, and then when I got to Hawaii, there was a, someone teaching future studies, uh, Jim Dater. And I think what attracted me towards what he was saying was, don't think from one field, think from multiple fields. And two, it was very much around inclusion of the future. And the things I wanted to talk about, which was transculturalism, spiritual issues, global governance, none of those could be defined by one particular discipline. So it was the transdisciplinarity of futures that I found fascinating. I can remember you said to me once that around the kitchen table you had you had Sufism and you had global geopolitics, and that was your that was your conversation yeah. over breakfast, lunch, yeah. and dinner. My father was working with the UN on development issues, cooperative issues, and my mom has always been a Sufi mystic. So for me, both were kind of a priori. You have to work this out. Yep. What would a better world would look like, and what's the role of our inner consciousness, metacognition, in creating that better world? Right. And who were the people who both inspired you and encouraged you and supported you in your journey into the space? Well, I think, I mean, when you ask that, the person I remember was Akhtar Hamid Khan. He was my father's friend. And he visited us in Geneva and played chess with my younger brother. And I think what was intriguing for me was he was one of my father's colleagues. And he had developed the Kumila Project in Bangladesh. 
and Orangi project in Karachi. And what was unique about him, he had a vision of how things would be different, but it was very much around action learning. So he used sanitation as a way to rethink the city. Mm-hmm. So it was very much visionary, but it was also very pragmatic. And, you know, he had this really great energy. So I would say those were the three, something visionary, something pragmatic, mm-hmm. and something where the person's energy was uh, apparent. So I have to say, he was, when I look back, that would have been in the late 60s. Wow. And then when I was in my final year in high school, I read a piece in something called the Malay Mail. It was a local newspaper in KL. And it said there's someone, Herman Khan has come to KL. <laughs> and my father looked at the picture and said, you know, he made a comment about the next 50 years. And it got me very interested in that article. Right. And Jim Dater was also there at that conference. And I remember, I mean, I had forgotten it until 10, 20 years later. I said, oh, my God, that's the first time I heard about futures. It was Kerman. That was Herman Kahn. Yeah. Okay. And then but I remember reading that piece as a 16-year-old. So that would have been the two kind of things that got me involved in the field. And, of course, reading, you know, my father's work about what's the third development paradigm outside of traditional capitalism, communism. Is there something else? Right. So the vehicle to something else had to be not just from what we know, but also from what we don't know, and had to be transdisciplinary. And it was very clear when I would go to these meetings as a young person that it couldn't be from the centers of power. So I got attracted to P.R. Sarkar, the Indian philosopher, started reading about his work on the future, which is very much about high-tech, high-spirit, and about an alternative view of post-capitalism, in effect. And Sarkar was your PhD, was he? Yeah, yeah. So that was so much fun to write. Uh, it was really linking his work to macro history. So is his theory of time, how does it compare to Hegel, Marx, Vico, Suma, Xian? So it was really, for me, it was great because after doing my master's in futures, I spent 10 years at the Hawaii justice system, the Hawaii judiciary. Started as an intern, so I was the intern who, who never left dinner. <laughs> and stayed there, and when I got there, all we knew was emerging issues analysis. So we would present that to judges and administrators, and they found it interesting, but we couldn't figure, they couldn't figure out the relevance part, and we as young students didn't, you know, actually didn't know how it was yeah, relevant no, either. Yeah. We were too far ahead. Hmm. And I remember one of my research projects was on the legal rights of robots. Yep. And now in 2019, I send that to people and said, oh my God, did you just write that last year? I said, no. <laughs> that was in a meeting in 1983, came out from a brainstorming, and we published it in 85 or 87, something like that. So that was all my future stuff was in the 80s. And then I really felt the need for the kind of the rigor part. And that was really on understanding Sarkar, macro history, futures, all that stuff. So those would be, when I look back, those three were, I think they were quite quite pivotal to how I started to think about futures. And then you moved, did, I mean, did you move into academia or did you move into into the actual pragmatics of actually, you know, working with people who wanted to actually work with the future? Well, phase one was the pragmatics. And then I remember in 82, I had finished my master's in futures in 81, was working for the Hawaii judiciary, and then someone said, you should do your PhD. And I thought about it, and I said, well, really, I don't know anything. And then I was starting to learn tennis then. And I really sat down and thought, what do these two futures feel like? I didn't do it consciously like I would do now. Here's scenario one, what does it feel like? Imagine it. Here's scenario two, what does it feel like? Imagine it. But I remember looking through, do I want to do my PhD? And I would have been finished by 24 or 25. 
or do I want to play tennis? And the voice was so strong, play tennis. Mm. And so those seven, eight years was working at the judiciary, just learning those skill sets. I mean, little things like, remember Lester Sincade, the court administrator. And I still remember I had got into an argument with one of the chief judges about something. I have no idea what now. And Les looked at me and I went to complain to Les. I said, judge so-and-so doesn't get it. And Les looked at me and said, he, he said, okay, so what do you truly want here? Mm. I was like, what? It's obvious. He's wrong, you know? And he said, take a week. And so it took me a week and I said, oh my God, what he's saying is, do you want to change the world and have an impact in Hawaii? Or do you want to be right? Yeah. And that was, you know, he was a very, he was a great teacher. So that was one of those teachable moments. I said, oh my God. So this is how to implement futures. Mm -hmm. So it was more important was the connection, community making, getting the judicial system to think about alternatives. And that project went for 10 years and then we really succeeded after all those emerging issues. We had a state conference, it was with national coverage and we started to think through, given these scenarios, what are some recommendations? And they had some really 20 great recommendations. And so that led to implementation. And then by the end of that, I was back in the PhD program. I said, no, this is now a real need. I remember my father calling me in 1987, and he never really gave advice. But he said, uh, isn't there something you need to be doing? <laughs> and I said, okay, Dad. I, I mean, that was it. The conversation over. Enrolled in the PhD program. Done. And then it was really the push. And I was lucky. Johan Galton was living in Hawaii then. Ah. So I showed him some of my articles on Sarkar, and he goes, this is great. So what do you want to do? I said, well, can I do my PhD with you? He said, of course. He said, I've come to the same conclusions as he has. It would be fantastic. And so that was, he was really great to work with. And he, for me, I mean, he challenged me. I remember my confirmation, what they call in Australia, my dissertation proposal. He looked at it. First, he just, at the first page, he threw in the garbage. He said, no. Your entire proposal deserves to be in the garbage. <laughs> and I just threw it all in the garbage. And the proposal confirmation was, you know, the next morning at nine. I said, Johan, it's noon. He goes, you have almost 24 hours to write 40 pages. Just go get it done. And I, I remember the kind of challenge yeah. to say, well, no, don't take this. This is your chance to do something of importance to both of us, but mm. to me especially. So that, that was... Uh, that was quite, uh, it was a great moment as well. And did that lead to the book? Yeah. So then I finished the PhD and then was wondering what to do next. So I did the usual applying for things. And then luckily I was fortunate enough to meet Tony Stevenson in Finland. It would have been in a sauna or in a meeting somewhere like <laughs> that. He said, do you want to come to Australia? And I said, are there beaches? He said, the beaches are wonderful. I said, okay. And somehow he convinced me that, he didn't say it did, but in my mind I was convinced that there's a beach in Brisbane. Yep. And so when I got there, I said, there's Tony, no where's beach. the beach? <laughs> he goes, you have to drive 90 minutes. I go, 90 minutes? <laughs> that's in Hawaii, that's a lifetime. But then eventually driving became less rigorous or less troublesome, shall we say. Not rigorous, but it became less of a ordeal. And then stayed there as a postdoc. And then, you know, I came as a postdoc very much. They wanted me to publish in macro history, Indian epistemology, comparative philosophy. And I was doing all those. And then, of course, with universities, the dean said, uh, what you folks are doing great, but you need to earn your own income. So I said with Tony, I said, so if we're going to earn our income, why do we need them? Mm. 
He goes, we don't. You know, I could see if it was Harvard or someplace like that where the branding, but this was QUT. What branding are they giving us that's so important? And then, you know, Tony said, look, what we're doing is great, but I'm not sure the broader market, the government, NGOs want critical theory. And I still felt they did. So for me, I tried to transform critical theory as how to ask uncomfortable questions about desired futures. And not in a way to freak people out, but to have them rethink assumptions. So then it was that transformation from critical theory in a way, in a philosophical way, to critical theory in a pragmatic way. So that started the next phase, moving out of the university per se, and then working with NGOs, clients, governments, businesses, companies, then with Melbourne Business School. And that started the next phase of yes to theory at the university, but also very much, yes, how do you work with people at every level to transform their images of the future and their strategies? So I really enjoy one foot at the university and one foot, if you want, you can say the markets with people and one foot very much of the inner space. Mm. So the work I'm doing now, which is the most enjoyable, is really this uh, meta to mantra process where we find the metaphor that people are working with and use mantra to transform it. Okay. So those are, so it's really those three in the earlier part about my father and mother that still continued. Okay. We might come back to the meta mantra one and sure. talk about it in the last question. That I think sounds interesting. Uh, I'd like to hear some more about it. I'm going to ask you a question just to, is that if you could talk, if you could, if you could meet the young Sahail that was starting out from your position in now, what kind of, you know, with what you've learned about the journey that you've been through, you got anything that you might advise your younger self? Not to make it easy, but to maybe just open up the journey for them. On a public podcast? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, I, I would look back would be the work-life balance, the family balance. I thought I was more balanced, but looking back, I still remember it would have been early 2000s or late 1990s, I was in all these listservs, long arguments with people. And my young kids walked in the room with posters and they did a, they did a protest. Uh, no more email, no more email. Okay. And since then, I think I stopped every listserv. Because you have arguments with people which are great in terms of clarifying ideas. But I would say the kids would say, Dad, is there something wrong today? I go, what do you mean? Well, you, seemed irrit you seem irritable. irritable. So I think part of it, looking back at the younger self, was don't engage in useless debates. And the times I have done that, it's really not gone well. And the kids always noticed. You're being preoccupied by something you think matters. Will it matters thirty? Will it still matter thirty years from now? And consistently, the answer it doesn't. No. question I'm going to ask you is the uh, and I again I encourage guests to be you know to be to be technical this is about explaining a, um, a favored method or approach or framework that you use in your practice and I and I'd encourage you to explain the tool and also explain for the listeners how they might go about setting it up to use the tool so what do you want to talk about I mean what I've been working on for 20 plus years is this six pillars approach 
And it's very much when you first you figure out your problem. And then using the futures triangle, which is mapping, you map out the problem. Then you go to pillar two, which is anticipating. You say, how, is, how might that problem change, giving emerging issues, weak signals, black swans, etc. Then pillar three is what is the timing of the issue? Is the disruption really novel or have we seen this before? It takes time as a reflective practice. Then pillar four is if we're going to start to engage deeper in these issues, how do you make the change? And that goes to causal alert analysis, CLA. Are there metaphors that are stopping us? What are better metaphors? Do the metaphors serve us or do they hurt us? That's a whole debate on the use, future, stranded assets. Then pillar five is scenarios. Pillar six is visioning, backcasting. Now what, so I've been doing that many years, but I think a week ago I had to do a speech at the University of Sunshine Coast. And I thought, well, let me rethink this in terms of when you're actually doing futures, is there a stage-wise approach? And so then I quickly figured out, borrowing from work of Esther Hicks, Sarkar as well, also Dater, that in and endless conversations with my own partner, Ivan Milovich, and my kids, that actually there is some stages. And stage one is very much, it's not fair. Mm -hmm. So many groups say it's not fair, the world is foundationally unfair, there's injustice. And that situation to jump to metaphor or vision is too soon. So it's really within the situation of unfairness, what can we do? So there I notice, uh, I sometimes I do scenarios, how to get them from no change to marginal change. I do a lot of macro history, how to find a theory that suggests that maybe a pendulum theory will work. Right now things look bleak, what if there's a pendulum shift? So I really get groups to engage in macro history to say, what's your theory of change? Is there something you can do simple prototype, action learning, that can lead to a change? So that's what I have found when groups are stuck in a way and rightfully stuck. Mm. They have accurate information that change is impossible. So in my role, that's kind of phase one. How do I get them to move? So remember, we did one workshop and, and the group was very much, no, change is impossible. And by the end of the two-day foresight process, they went from it's impossible to if we don't change, we'll be in an even more dismal space in 20 years. The impossibility is not going to decrease. The weight will even increase more. And then we use methods and tools, and then they move to a situation, okay, we're now going from impossibility, we're all going to die, to change as a snail pace, to some quick runs, and then to deep transformation. So when I, we were in Croatia decades ago, right after the war, and very much I wanted to move towards a vision, and they were very clear, the participants, no, we've been through a war, uh, we want to explore the worst case scenario. So I now I'm saying, okay, in a situation where the group has a worldview that's authentic to them, the change is impossible, I can't quickly try to convince them that they should change. Mm. So then I use, what are the right methods there? So that's kind of phase one. Then phase two, okay, now there's a bit of possibility. The kind of group two or phase two is this kind of uh, people want risk mitigation. So now I've moved a bit. Oh my God, I have some gold. I have to make sure no one else gets it. Or what if someone else takes it? So in this risk mitigation space, then of course the classical shell scenarios work. Low, high uncertainties. Because it's very rational, very quick to do, and you can figure out, here's where I lose, here's where I win. And emerging issues analysis comes in and says, well, here's disruptions in the meat industry. 
So today's Courier Mail headline was $5 million to ensure kids don't become vegan. So that's risk. You know, they're totally in a stage yep. of fear. And so this is where you think, okay, well, is that the best option or is the best option, what is the innovation around being vegan? How can Australia lead in veganism? And that starts to set up different conversations. So this kind of second phase in foresight is risk mitigation. There we do scenarios, we do emerging issues, we do futures wheel. We acknowledge that for them, the worst case is losing their profit, their market capitalization, their control of identity, their sovereignty. Given that, what are best scenarios then? So scenarios work and emerging issues works and futures, futures wheels works there. So now I've kind of done it. Okay, this is cool. I was working with a huge uh, company in New Zealand. They own most of South Island. As we went through this process, uh, you know, they were financial managers. So yes to vision, yes to all those, but was really the CFO, he was asking the tough question, what if land is a stranded asset? If the cultivation of land in itself is a used future? And this is a very tough question. So this is risk mitigation, he got futures. The other people in the room who had a far more spiritual, traditional, indigenous men, they were totally into metaphors and stories. They're fantastic. This revitalizes our culture. And I could see for him, no, the place where it made sense was risk mitigation and op opportunity creation then. But first identify risk, then move to opportunity. If I go to opportunity too quick, they're like, no, wait a second. There's things I'm going to lose. So that's kind of phase two I'm thinking now in futures. Phase three, okay, I figured out the risk. Then think, well, what do I do? So do I do this? Do I do that? Then now it's real scenarios. Mm. So I could do this no change, marginal change, adaptive change, disruptive change. So now I've opened up the space. And then also the CL, causal analysis process, CLA works really well there. So level one is litany. What am I doing every day? My measurements, the system that supports the measurements, the deep culture and the core metaphor behind it. So with one bank, the litany was disbursements. And, you know, basically their banking is lending. And said, so, well, is that the only, is that the world you want to be in? Well, the risk suggests there's new infrastructure banks coming into Asia. So they're in a high risky situation, even though they're doing well. So then we start to think, given that risk, what's an alternative? Then we go to the phase, basically, what are the different scenarios? Now we enter alternatives and that becomes really exciting. Mm. Is it this? Is it that? Is it that? I remember with one Ministry of Education, their main scenario was force feed. We've designed education in our country to force feed kids. They said, well, what's the different scenario? Let's move through this. Their second one was what you know, what lecturers said, which was omnivore, blended learning. A bit of meat, a bit of veggies. And then we said, well, let's look at it from the student view scenario too. The student's view was eat all you can, 24-7, all yeah. the time. We design curriculum. Instead of you folks designing it, we design it. And now we're, now we're in this, okay, well, what are the futures then? Is it a full 24-7 student-led system? Is it lecturer-led? Should it be ministry-led? And then the final thing was the kind of the integrated scenario, which was a healthy buffet. And this I found powerful because the content was it's ministry plus professors plus students and parents, of course. So it's kind of a negotiated future. And so that's the content part. The process part was the participants went through a situation where instead of, here's the thing we should do, right? World Bank says this. Minister says this. No way. Let's explore the alternatives. 
So now once I've got him to the three, four different scenarios, I can go to the next part, which is directionality. What's the vision? They've opened up, they've got out of, I can't do anything. They've moved to risk mitigation opportunities. They've got to scenarios. Now it's directionality. Where do we want to go? And now it's choose. Yeah, it's, it's choose. choose yeah. And yeah. I'm I'm hearing in that in that process, one of the things that you're doing, because I know you and I know how you work, is that you're immediately doing scenarios as metaphors. Yeah, so, yeah, so, always. Yeah, they're stories. And once people have metaphors and have their metaphors and have their stories, then that's what you call scenarios, which is really the scenario is the story, yeah. not necessarily the outside world. It's if, who we are in the world. If, if that's useful to people, if there's a data di- dimension. I know this group I'm working with today, he's a consultant for dentistry. And the morning we went through this process and their big risk was, I said, what do dentists now do? Well, dentists are the people who intervene in your mouth. What's the risk? He goes, well, robots start doing it. Mm. And then we had scenarios. Scenario one is synthetic biology. We have new teeth. Scenario two is prevention through a new drink that cleans your teeth. Scenario three is robots do it. Scenario four, humans still manage. When we went to the vision, everything changed. I said, what's the vision? He goes, the vision is a space, a moment where people want to go to the dentist and it's painless. It's a painless, almost desired experience. And now I said, well, given that, what does that tell you? He said, well, my scenarios were great to get me in this space, but actually it's the vision that's most important. And so then once I've done directionality, I can go to the next phase, which is let's make the vision real. And the two things I do there, one is backcasting. In this case, it was asking him, well, if 2030, people want to go to the dentist. It's a fun thing to do. What things have to happen in the last 10 years? You want it to happen. And the other thing that really works well, some organizations say, no, give us backcasting. That's a structured, linear way to get to the future. But the best projects I find aren't. I had one group. It was a rural health in one country. And they said, we want to transform our rural health care. I said, great, they gave me 50 CEOs for two days. It was a very powerful project in terms of what they came up with, which was like this 5P vision. Prevention, precision, personalized, participatory, and partnership. A radical vision of the future of health. Basically, the, the hospital almost, the hospital transforms the home, becomes a caring center. You're in charge of your health, genomics, the new technologies help you prevent. So this is great now. I have Horizon 3. Then the message comes from someone in head office, this is really quite inappropriate, the politics of the issue. What happens to hospitals? How do we fund this? This is too far. How do, get, how do, how do citizens get behind it? So in that situation, we move to open space technology. And it's really where I'm very appreciative of the work of Tony Stevenson, Rob Burke. And I remember Tony first taught it to me in Bangkok. And just a little segue, we had a five-day course for... World Future Studies Federation, and Tony was leading it as a secretary general. And on the fourth day in the morning, he said, okay, we've now been doing lectures. At that time, the only thing I knew then was to give a lecture. We've had three days of lectures. Now, what do you want to do? And I looked at Tony. I said, Tony, are you crazy? You're asking them? That's not how pedagogy works. And it was in Asia, even. And for the first 10 minutes, everyone was quiet. I said, oh, my God, what a massive failure. And I looked at Tony. He was just calm. I thought, my God, he teaches with so much calmness. And then suddenly there was an eruption of creativity. And the entire 20, 30 people designed the next day in ways that made sense for them. 
and suddenly at 7.30, I was doing a workshop on post-structural critical futures. I didn't plan to do this. You know, we want to study more of this. And so this open space technology, then suddenly at 1.30, I said to the group, here's your vision. Now, what do you folks want to do? And 10 people raised their hands. I want to, re I want to design a home hospital. I want to look at how do we measure prevention. I want to see, given my current budget, how do I create a safe hospital? Out of those 10, three people were left alone. Open space technology works by feet. Walk to what's interested to you. So three people said, oh my God, no one's coming here. Said, well, that tells you the truth. No one's interested. Seven were packed. And the seven then developed their strategy, their scenarios, and they presented them. Then at 4.30, the CEO stands up and says, all the seven projects are fully funded. Notwithstanding what the head office had said and everything else. He was the head office. He was the head office. Okay. But he had stayed quiet the entire time. So people left the room with scenarios, metaphors, vision, strategies, and fundable projects. So one view is we create the future from strategic plan. This is, you know, we create the future from energy. In my own life, I've watched basketball that way. I grew up where passing was everything. Then Michael Jordan created something called hero ball as a metaphor. And playgrounds all over the world changed to who's the hero. And then about 10 years ago, this one coach, Mike Tantoni, said, no, find the energy. And that was revolutionary. That wherever the energy is in the room, you give the ball there and let people basically self-organize. And people said, what is he doing? What is he doing? And he started to win. And then phase two was data analytics. And so this was the transition I saw. The best teams use heavy data. So someone says, well, here's how I think I should shoot. Well, no, we have incredible data. Here's where you should shoot and find the energy. So this shift as metaphor from hero ball to find the energy. And I've seen that from no data to full data. So in CLA, new litany, new metaphor. So this now I'm playing, I've got the vision. Now I'm making the vision real. And that segues into the next part of this process. I've moved them from the world can't be changed to here's how I avoid risk, to here's some scenarios, to here's the vision, and here's some ways forward. Now I go to CLA. It's like putting it together. What's your new metaphor, your new narrative, and how does your narrative link to cultural change, to systemic change, to how you measure the future? So in one project that Ivana Milojevic did, it was for International Bank, they looked at congestion in cities. And then as they went through the process, some of the economists said, oh my God, this congestion obviously increased demand for energy, increased demand for cars, because our KPI, our litany is number of kilometers paved. So our success is based on kilometers paved, which made sense 30 years ago. In 2019 does it, 2018 does it. And so then said, so what's the story? Why are we doing this? The story is, I love my car. The culture is, let's be like LA. The car, oil, car is freedom worldview. I said, okay, now let's shift the story. So the new story they came up with, I love my community. The worldview goes from car-centric to mobility-centric, person-centric. The system changes from basically traditional, let's build roads, to how do we create connectivity? How do we reduce carbon emissions? And the new litany now is basically increasing efficiency, effectiveness, increasing connectivity. 
And so that was really a way powerful. We could see CLA, you transform from the way the world was to the way the world you want it to be. And now suddenly everyone is buzzed about narrative. If the beginning part, well, that's just a story. The world is unjust. If I tell them that's just a story, they're going to freak because mm. no one wants to be told that. But over this process, as futures literacy, metacognition is enhanced, suddenly narrative becomes easily accessible. And once I've done that, then if the group is open, I say, okay, you've come up with a new story, and we do it collectively, but let's do the story of the self. So my favorite example, we had one room, I won't tell you which country, and it was a junior detective with senior detectives. As we did the CLA of the self, which is let's expand, you know, we do the CLA of the, ex, of the external world, let's apply this to ourself. He said, well, I'm a Nokia, I'm an iPhone in a room full of Nokias. Now, that's an objectively authentic statement, and I think he's probably right. Now, of course, his colleagues are listening to this. So then you think, well, what's a better story? And his better story was the kind of, we co-design chips. That's great. So that's higher up the chain. It's higher up the river. It's IP. It's really the detectives moving from system designers. So everyone loved it. And then I said, okay, that's your metaphor. Now, what's the mantra? The mantra process, you ask, which is the self saying this? So in normal transformation work, the first thing you have to find out, who has the problem, who has the solution? So this was clearly the self who was saying this, the one who felt either discriminated against because he's the youngest, and that's the opposite, then he's the best, right? iPhone in a room full of Nokias. So then when you went with the mantra process, you figure out, you imagine the self saying this, and what's the metaphor, which was... Uh, either the iPhone in a room full of Nokias or the co-designer chip, and you apply a mantra to it. So mantra is across civilizations, whether it's secular or spiritual or religious, you have a mantra, a word that signifies something important. So when he applied his mantra, which I don't know what it was, suddenly he said the chip disappeared. And he was basically in a room full of the sun giving love and warmth to everyone. So the symbol there was move out of judgmental, I'm better or worse, into there's actually emotional connectivity here. And so that became a very powerful way for him to move forward. So this is what I really enjoy. Individuals leave, I leave, not what I think is my rational future, the new future, the vision part. Because the vision is from rational, from the data, from the stories, but they're still created by the one of the dominant selves. The mantra comes in from a surprising self, yep. an unexpected self, a different self. It could be the metacognition self, the spiritual self. I'm not sure. It comes in and says, well, you think that's the future. Here's a deeper future. And that mantra then represents the possible way forward. Cool. So that's what I really enjoy with individuals. And when a group is ready, we do that in a collectivity of uh, an organization. So this process, I'm just experimenting on it. It just came to me a, few, a week ago moving from the world's unfair to let me have a transformative process about myself. And so before six pillars was more, you know, it's very linear sequential, but you can use any one of them. But this is now I've tried to figure out, okay, how do I use the future in different f different situations based on the cognitive emotional framework of people in the room? Yeah. And the other part in there I do in the plausibility, making the future real. So we had one group, and they they went very conservative group, but again by the second day they were looking at vision, a transformed vision for health in this country, and it was quite radical. 
and everyone in the room was really buying it. But on the second day, it shifted back. It went from adaptive, radical future to no, no change, marginal. And everyone was looking what's going on. So then I did the Sarkar game. And you, of course, you you designed the Sarkar game. You invented it. So I went, okay, let's test what's really going on here. So the Sarkar game was going okay. Then one of the caseworkers, she killed everyone in the room but one person. Mm. And then when we tried to go on to the next method, one of the board members said, no, I'm uncomfortable going forward here. I go, why? Well, we were just witness to genocide. <laughs> it was playful. It was fun. We all had insights, but we have to unpack this. And then we asked that person. I'd already inquired into what's going on, but playfully. And she said, I am the angel of light. Mm. And I said, angel of light? <laughs> you killed all the board. You killed the CEO. You killed everyone but one person in your playful role-playing role. And she goes, no. We don't have a choice anymore. You know, we're a service provider in the wellness health space. All of you are focused on illness. If we don't jump to this new vision on wellness, we disappear as an organization. We started to make the shift. I sensed all of you were going back to your safety zone, business as usual. I will not allow it. So as the angel of light, I have killed all of you, and you all have to make a decision now. She was Kali, wasn't she? She was Kali. And that, so that, but it also gave the group now, okay, are we doing this or not doing it? Lovely. So this was very powerful to me. And first I was, you know, I was, I was saying, you know, you have killed everyone except one, she, her buddy. You know, she kept her for some reason. We don't know why. And so the Sarkar game in this sense is the plausibility. And people say, well, do you have any scientific evidence? I said, no, this is about insight. Mm. Is the future we're talking about at the personal collective level, do we really believe it? Or is this just basically a foresight exercise? Head, heart. Yeah. yeah. And she was saying the head knows it has to shift, heart is nervous, and I'm ensuring the will occurs today. Lovely. If it doesn't, aloha. Good. Thanks. So, hi, our third question is. And I ask you, is how do you see the emerging futures um, happening? And what, what particular emerging futures are energizing and drawing your attention? You might like them, but they certainly get your notice. And time frame, 30 years, maybe the next gen, whatever you want to choose as a frame for how you do it. The emerging futures I find interesting? Yeah. Well, definitely, I notice the ones I talk about, so that's why I'm going as the indicator, is the shift from traditional meat to in vitro pure meat and the plant-based revolution. So I find that fascinating from a personal view and also from a collective view watching people resist. I remember a workshop with one country's primary agriculture when we ran what would it look like if in vitro pure cellular agriculture took off and uh, the scenario one was kill the vegans, hmm. scenario two was kill the scientists Three was kill Melbourne and Sydney coffee drinkers. So I look at when there's change, the kind of natural response is, is actually resistance. So our role as foresight practitioners is, what do we say, how do we get them ready to transform? So that's one big shift I see. Uh, the second one is really 
I mean, I need to go to macro theory to get out of this in that sense. It's really the agreement made a few hundred years ago in terms of the solution to the universal and the particular was the nation state. And that solution worked for centuries. It no longer works. The Treaty of Westphalia. The Treaty of Westphalia. Back to there. So what is the new solution? Mm. And that solution is basically what we're living through now. Yeah. Is it the Great Wall? Is it the Great Market? Is it something else? And clearly for me, climate change suggests the only way forward is a global governance system. And phrase one is getting nation-state protocol agreement, but that has to include all mm. the perspectives. The piece I read this morning, it was insurance companies love Greta. So there's a science we know from the science view of climate change, and then we have the extreme right-wing group saying no. Uh, they're telling the story of don't believe the scientists. And they have think tanks, industry, who see their product as potentially stranded. And now some of the insurance companies jump in and say, well, actually, we don't care about either. We want a predictable environment, otherwise we're bankrupt. So if you want a regulated world financial system climate change is real and you must act on it and there's no way around it so i found that interesting mm. so i'm really am convinced whether we go through carter chefs moving from a type zero planetary civilization to a type one where governance and energy are aligned or sarkar's in the way from we need a global governance system with a global local economy i mean those two are the big ones and that leads to, again, the third one, which I know you wrote about in your PhD, is the conventional, unconventional. Mm. So it's still, in my work, 90% of the people who ask me for assistance or ask me to work with them, partner with them, uh, tend to be female. And they're very much in the Khaldunian model, figured out they're the Bedouins. The current system will never give them what they want. If they survive or excel in it, basically they've adopted masculinist values. If they run from it, then they're being victimized feminine values. So the only way is actually the transformation. So for me, I would really see that as the four transformations. The food transformation, mm. the governance transformation, the gender transformation, and really finding out this new formula for a planetary civilization, which is the energy shift. I know in one workshop in South Africa, we asked the question, it was the largest energy company in Africa. We asked them, what would happen if the price of solar dropped below coal? And I was lucky that week in the Chile, Dubai, and Delhi markets it had. They said, well, if this trend continues, we go bankrupt. I said, okay, so you go bankrupt, so what are things you can do today? And phase one was all around, we'll go shift to solar, but coal is our big asset. It's going to be hard to do that. And the phase two discussion was, given the ecology of Africa, it makes more sense to have solar hut, you know, solar in huts and villages. And then we need to have solar cooperatives. And then phase three, someone said, well, we need to invent the Uber, a peer-to-peer energy sharing system. So this kind of global energy transformation is crucial to all this. And I saw an article just recently, the first place where they're experimenting is in Bangladesh. A P2P system. And the question I ask myself and others, well, why is it 
the idea starts really in South Africa, to my knowledge, but of course other people have found it elsewhere, and gets invented in Bangladesh. And again, because this is the whole thing we all talk about as futurists. The world, if I'm great in the world I live in today, in the new world, I don't have the assets for it. So that's really our pitch. And then watching this in the energy field as well, that there has to be a shift. So those are the five shifts we're seeing in our new book, Asia 2038. You know, we said, okay, if that's the case, what happens to Asia by 2038, by 2050? So clearly there's a hegemonic transfer from U.S. to China. We know that's happening to East Asia. But is it just a hegemonic shift? Well, no, it's also a shift towards predictive data, data analytics, artificial intelligence. It's also a shift in terms of the rise of females, a kind of a, a different kind of society, if you like. It's also a shift in terms of energy. It's also a shift in terms of governance that's futures oriented. So, and then people say, well, that's a bit too positive. I said, yeah, well, that's, those are the positive indicators we see. We're not stupid. We can see a fractured Asia. We can see Asia as empire. But the stuff that excites us, that leads from risk mitigation to possibility, are these transformative trends. So that's kind of what I really end up focusing on. Other futures could say, no, I really want to focus on the trends that lead us to hell. And those are quite appropriate. And it's, a, it's an important message. And I wish them well, but that's not the space I like to play mm, in. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's 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 kind of a story, again, of for me, what I'm hearing is that, is that, is that you know, the center is weakening. Yeah. Um, Centers everywhere are weakening, yeah. And also the respect, people are not giving them the respect. So they're actually weakening and they're losing respect. And it's yeah. the periphery that people are getting yeah. excited. Yeah. But that is still that is still chaos. Yes. In the sense that it is it is not necessarily going to go forward and create good things, but it's going to be chaotic in its nature. It's our lived realities. The rise of Islamic fascism, extremism is chaotic, but it's also helping the Ummah, the Islamic world, saying, here's the future we don't know, want. Yeah. It's the Sufi syncretic future that becomes a desire for everyone. Yeah. I mean, Bin Laden hoped the middle class in the Islamic world would run to him. They said, no. We like houses, education, health, homes, clothes. Yeah. We actually want a better world for our children. We don't want that particular world. And so I think we're seeing that with Mr. Trump. Mm. You know, he's creating that future and producing, do we want that future? So in a way, it's difficult, but he highlights that. And it, it is good to have the other. I mean, you know, the thing about having the other is that when the other becomes in your face obvious, yeah, yeah then you can actually have a discourse. You can actually, but if it's actually not spoken about and it's and it's it's kind of a disowned or a shadow future, yeah, it's not it's not openly talked about. I mean, I actually think in some respects, you know, the rise of people like Trump and others actually improve that. There's actually the potential for actual real discourse now because that future is now made real. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's in the live moment, it's really not much fun. For us, as futures, we take a longer-term view, we can see the pattern. Mm. I mean, that's almost one of our things we do offer in the field. Long-term patterns, which may, may not be easily accessible to others, because mm. they're totally fixated on short-term problems, yeah. which are real and authentic. Thanks, Ahal. Question four, Sahail, is the is the classic of how do you 
explain to people what you do when they don't necessarily know what it is that you do? I really don't have that problem anymore. I mean, that world doesn't exist. So pre-genomics, pre-internet, pre-fall of Soviet Union, pre-9-11, pre-artificial intelligence, future seems strange because we were talking about destabilization. Now we live in that world. So in that world, it's easy for me to explain what we're doing. So a number of groups uh, throughout who are doing foresight keeps on increasing everywhere. Some close, some start. Uh, I know in terms of my own narrative, people ask me, okay, so what's your narrative? I remember when you know UNESCO said, do you want to be a future studies chair? I said, great, they said, please apply. So well, how do I frame this, which is your question, into something that's cogent, understandable to so someone in a global institution? So I said, well, my first phase after graduating was planting seeds. So here are seeds of change. Here are possibilities. And I was very happy doing that. And then after 10, 15 years, I could see there were certain clients, groups, cities, people who I gravitated towards. And they became not planting seeds, but nurturing young trees. They were nurturing me. I was nurturing them. It was very much both ways. I was learning a ton from them. And, you know, they kept on wanting me back. So I assume it was good. For, you know, they were learning something too. And so that became phase two. And I think that's the phase in future studies as well. Here are six, seven projects each person nurtures. And phase three for me, which really struck me was, no, my role is really creating an ecology of foresight, a forest of foresight. So I don't really, in that role, one is just nurturing the entire forest. So is it running a workshop? Yes. Is it writing an article? Yes. Is it doing a blog? Yes. Is it someone on the street who wants to know about futures? Yes. So I know one way that makes sense to just a parent, I would say, well, if you're living, say, an example in Australia, most likely your kids will live to 90 or 100. If that's the case, wouldn't it be rational to have them start thinking about their life 90 years from now, 80 years from now, 70 years from now? And most people say yes. Said, okay, given that, then how do you in a structured way do that? We do visioning. We do backcasting. We do metaphors. We have to help them work on their story of the future. And parents get it. And I would say from the age of 8 to about 18, every teenager, young person I work with gets it. So they get very excited. So it's not so difficult to explain. The harder thing to explain, which I think you're really hitting on, is junk futures. So I think my role, I feel, is nurture the forest and some trees need to be burnt. And I want to do it in a loving, kind way. <laughs> and, but I think that's an important role. And I learned that from the academy. People say, well, the academy is a castle. I said, yes, the castle needs to be transparent. The moat, the bridge, the moat, the bridge needs to go over the moat. And there's a role for the sword. Mm. There's a role for the castle. Well, there's a moat. Yeah, there's a moat. Here's junk. Here's good stuff. So I know many times people get excited about futures. They think we're talking about the singularity or we're talking about you know, going to other universes. I said, well, that's interesting, but that's not future studies. That could fascinate you, but this is more a structured methodology to think rationally, emotionally, spiritually, in alternative ways about the future. And it's a way that can transform your person, your city, your institution, your country, the planet.
ideally. So that becomes far more sensible. Uh, so I have no problem with people going towards wild futures as long as, in my view, our role is always futures. And when people say, well, no, future studies is about this future, well, not really. So I know Ivana Miloj's work, she talks about, well, why are, is an image of people sitting in a row education, but people holding hands peacefully, smiling or meditating that education? So this R becomes a role here are different educational futures. Yep. Good, thanks. So question five, last question is the open question. Do you want to maybe just elaborate some more on this uh, metaphor and mantra stuff that you were talking about? Well, the metaphor to mantra, the mantra technique is developed by a monk, Dada Prana. He's passed away now, and he developed through the work of Halasidra Stone. And their main assumption was we don't have one self, we have multiple selves. So briefly, there's a vulnerable child. And as he or she grows up, there's the rebellious teenager, then the multiple adult selves. And so in our work in terms of futures, once we've outlined scenarios or a vision or a strategy, then it's really the reflective practitioner. Who am I in this process? So when we run through this process, we ask people, what's the problem? You know, what are you facing? I remember one person, she said, well, she's tired of her husband. So then we said, what's the system around that problem? Who's the one who's tired? And then it, then it became level three was, uh, what's the worldview? When did you first feel this fatigue, this tiredness? She goes, well, it was 10 years ago he said this. And then it was like, what's the core metaphor? And the metaphor she said was, uh, basically it was chains or something like that. I said, okay, so now we've set up, here's an analysis of today. And then it was, then we said she imagined, then as in the mantra process, you choose a mantra and what I tend to do is, uh, this is again borrowed from many people, at least bolding for one, is you take them, you say, here's, we're going to 2030. They go over the green hedge, then they go up this ancient tree on the sixth floor, they meet their future self. Future self gives them a message, and once the message is read, then I have them imagine the metaphor, so the chain metaphor. And then I said, now apply mantra to it. Figure out who's the self. And and once she figured out the self that had the issue, and she did the mantra to it, I think the new metaphor that came out was an open chariot. She said, she needs to go, but the door is open for him. And so that was her new strategy. It wasn't chained, I'm going to run. It was, no, we're going on a journey together. Dear partner, the door's open, please join me. So that became a very, and the mantra tends to have metaphors, you know, that are right for the moment. Mm. In this case, it was open, it was inclusive, it was a journey, it was very different from the chains one. If we'd done it rationally, she might have said, smash the chains, yeah. something like that. But this was, no, here's where she wants to go. So it's personal, and it's usually quite quite provocative and healing. Mm. And most people experience lots of inner peace after the process because they're going to a deeper self or a self, a metacognitive self. It's a different self that starts to design it. Now, someone did ask me, because I presented this talk a week ago, 
And so I said, well, have you done a collective mantra process? And I said, no, I've not done that. Usually I ask permission. Mm. Is this something you want to do? Is it comfortable? And most groups say, yeah, it sounds good. But I mean, you can't do it on the first day. No, no. It's really a two or three day process where they feel trust uh, in the methodology and a trust in their journey. And they feel that the mantra process can help create a new narrative. Now, once they've done that, then I go back to the CLA up back. I then go back to level two. So it's okay, now you have a new metaphor. Say it's the carriage. And I say, well, what systemic support do you need? So at the systemic level, what causes it, drives it, supports it. So if it's a carriage with an open door, what does that actually mean? So it could mean a communicative process with the partner. Here's where I wish to go. Here's the framework for that. The carriage, here's the financial support that that means with the financial package. And here's, you know, so it's getting clear on that. I know when I was doing it on myself, I had, uh, you know, the new metaphor was uh, me being a spaceship traveling to different solar systems. And the solar systems were things around the world I needed to go to. Mm. And that was a way to keep myself energized, keep connecting with people. My son was in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. And then the issue was, well, what systemic support do I need for that? If it's going to be extensive travel, it can go to a tired self very Mm. quickly. So what is the support that I need? Is it certain airline? Is it a process when I'm in that city? So for me, it was very clear in the evenings I don't meet people, for example. After 5, 6 p.m., it's like, you know, people say, well, can we all have dinner? I said, no, not really. How about we have a meeting late? I said, no, I can't do that. So it's saying, I, so the new mantra metaphor sets up the direction, but then it's asking, how do I design systems to support it? Otherwise, it's just a story. Yeah. It's an empty story. The potency actually disappears. So then it's really system supports story, story supports system. Until, you know, the world changes the again. The world changes again. Yeah, and then, you, then you start over. Good. Thanks, Al. Well, look, Pleasure. I'm going to wrap it up here. Thanks very much for coming in and spending some time with the FuturePod community. I really do appreciate it. And all the best in your futures. Thanks, Peter. Really appreciate it as well. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.